This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. This is Episode 5 of the Recorded Future podcast. Looking back at predictions for what to expect in cybersecurity in 2017, one thing that was on just about everyone's list was ransomware. It's quickly risen to be one of the top cyber threats these days and shows no signs of slowing down. On today's podcast, we'll speak with a man who wrote the book on ransomware. Well, co-wrote one, anyway. Alan Liska is a senior solutions architect at Recorded Future and co-author of the book Ransomware, Defending Against Digital Extortion. Stay with us. There are two types of ransomware. The first is what we call a locker ransomware. And a locker ransomware is a utility uh, program uh, virus that prevents you from accessing your system. So it doesn't encrypt anything. All it does is keep you out of it. This type of ransomware is most commonly found on mobile phones. So somebody downloads a bad app from the app store, they open it up, their phone's locked, and they can't get access to it until they put in a bunch of iTunes gift cards or whatever the currency is. These are generally fairly easy to get around. Uh, you may lose a little bit of data, but um, you know, but if you reset your phone or, or you know, often re- even reboot your computer, you can get around that. The more common type of ransomware and the type that is in the news is the crypto ransomware. And that is ransomware that encrypts files on your system. Sometimes it encrypts the whole disk, but mostly it's just encrypting select files on your system and requires you to pay a ransom in order to gain access to those files. So you pay a ransom. In theory, the uh, bad guy gives you a key, you put the key in, and you can then unlock your files again. And ransomware certainly has uh, come to the fore in the past year or so, but historically looking back, how, how long has this been around? Surprisingly a long time. Uh, ransomware was first introduced in the 90s. There were a couple of problems with early ransomware. One, there weren't built-in crypto libraries into the system, so you had to have your own crypto libraries, um, which made the, the, the idea of delivering ransomware much more bulky. And there was no effective way to pay the ransom. There wasn't anything you could do in order to get the money easily from from the victim to the attacker. So it really didn't take off at all. In fact, it kind of faded away. From there, we go to Bitcoin. In the you know 2010s, we have the development of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, but Bitcoin is the primary one. Now we have an anonymous way to transfer money from a victim to a bad guy. Uh, not a, not completely anonymous, but 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 effectively untraceable. Now you have the means to collect payment that can't be pulled back by the banks. And we have the benefit of better processors, built-in crypto libraries in the major operating systems. And so now it's much easier to write ransomware and have that ransomware delivered 
and effectively installed and run so it's reliable and you can get your money with no way to get it back. And we really start to see the rise of this type of crypto ransomware late 2011, early 2012. Are we seeing ransomware mostly affecting consumers or is it affecting businesses as well? There are two ways that ransomware is delivered. The first is through mass spam campaigns, and, and that's probably the most popular delivery method, not necessarily the most effective, but the most popular delivery method. And the second method is through exploit kits. You go to a website that's been compromised, the compromised website uh, uh, finds a vulnerability in your browser or one of your browser plugins, it exploits it, and then loads up the ransomware. The ransomware delivered via spam is indiscriminate. And we see like the Lockheed campaign at its height was sending out tens of millions of emails every month. But what we saw was that in on the consumer side, most of that ransomware wasn't getting through. So when you go home at night, you probably have a Gmail account or a, you know, an Outlook.com, uh, maybe even a Yahoo account. And those security teams behind those accounts have gotten really good at quickly identifying ransomware and, and spam-type emails. And so a lot of that winds up in your spam folder and you as a consumer never see it. I, I have a Gmail account at home and I can go into my spam folder anytime I need ransomware samples and there's a half dozen new ones in there that I uh, hadn't seen before, but I, I never actually see them. Um, but I know I can pull them out and extract them. <laughs> and so with this businesses, especially the small and medium-sized businesses, a lot of them don't have the same level of protections that are in place. So you know, they're too big for using standard Gmail. So they're using business Gmail, which doesn't always have the same protections in there because Gmail in that case is much more liberal about letting email in into your inbox because they don't want any business communication disrupted by accidentally sending something to spam folder. And a lot of the especially small uh, to medium-sized businesses aren't at the point where they can afford like a, a proof point or a semantic mail gateway, something that's going to block a lot of that on behalf of the business. Business. And so they they're start, sort of become the sweet spot of the most vulnerable targets, because even though they may not be getting the bulk of the email, they're seeing the bulk of these alerts. I see. Do you think a lot of ransomware incidents go underreported because people are ashamed or they don't want their customers to know that they got hit? Absolutely. There's still this stigma, even though I think by some accounts, something like almost 50% of small and medium-sized businesses were hit with some form of ransomware last year. There's still this stigma that I've done something wrong because this ransomware hit to my employees or to me or, or whatever. So I, I do think that there's not a lot of reporting. Now, some of that's going to change because we've already seen HIPAA has changed requirements that uh, they consider ransomware a reportable offense. I think more you're going to probably see that with PCI as PCI continues to update. They're going to define ransomware as a reportable offense. And so more of these businesses are going to be forced to report it. I would hope beyond that businesses would see this as a chance to share information to help protect others in their industry. If you keep it to yourself, especially if it's a new technique, something that hasn't been seen before, then you're just leaving the next person vulnerable to that. And, and I think it's really important that, that we share this type of information as widely as possible to allow people to um, protect themselves. 
suppose you get hit with ransomware. Should you pay the ransom? You know, the security guy in me says no. If you pay the ransom, you are helping the ransomware guys make more and better ransomware. Uh, you're encouraging bad behavior. That's the security guy in me. Uh, but the, the, the business side of things realizes it's not always that simple. So it, it's a matter of what makes sense from a business perspective um, with a couple of caveats. One, just because you've paid the ransom doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get your files back. Uh, some ransomware is straight up scam. Uh, so you'll get hit with this ransomware, you'll pay the ransom, nothing will happen. Uh, we saw that with the Petra ransomware, which just overwrote your master boot record, produced a ransom note, you paid the ransom, your master boot record was still overwritten and there was nothing you could do about it. But more so, there's a matter of how much is it going to cost you to pay the ransom versus getting the files restored, getting your business back up and running, etc. So from a business perspective, the answer is sometimes yes. Uh, we see this especially with hospital chains, right, or, or, or healthcare providers where patient services is tantamount. And so even if there are backups, it may be faster to pay the ransom, get the key and get um, you know patient services back up and running as quickly as possible versus a backup, which may take hours and hours in order to uh, get those restored and get them back in place and, and so on. So there are cases where, you know, business wise, it, it, it unfortunately makes more sense to pay the ransom. And, and that's something we just have to accept as part of the consideration. And I've, I've heard uh, descriptions of these incidents where someone will get hit with ransomware, uh, the bad guys will demand a ransom, they'll pay the ransom, and then the bad guys come back and say, well, now we need more from you. Uh, and so that negotiation process begins. Does part of that negotiation include uh, having, the, having the bad guys prove that they can actually decrypt some files? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if you are going to pay the ransom, if you've made the business decision that you have to do that, the first thing that I would ask is, OK, I need to decrypt a file. I need you to prove to me that this actually works, because some ransomware is very, very professionally developed and, and well done. Others are, are crap. Uh, they're just not very well done. And even if the bad guy intends to give you the keys to unencrypt your files, it just flat out may not work. So uh, you absolutely, before paying anything, you want to make sure that your files can actually be decrypted and you need proof of that before uh, before paying anything. And, and yes, you know, un unfortunately, it, it, so this would be the other thing I would say is if you are a large company or, or a fairly large organization and you've been hit with ransomware, go home and start the negotiation there. Because if the bad guy sees your IP address, does a who is look up on it and says, oh, you know, you're a hundred million dollar company. Your price just went up to 300 grand for ransom. That hurts your, your your bargaining position. Whereas if they go and say, okay, well, this is a Comcast uh, home IP address. Okay, you're just a home user. Then that's fine. Uh, uh, yeah, no problem. We can, uh, you, you know, we'll, we'll stick with the original ransom. And that is part of the way that the, especially the more sophisticated actors work is they are looking at who the victim is. 
Yeah, it makes me wonder, you know, just like there are professional hostage negotiators, or is there an opportunity for there to be professional ransomware negotiators? <laughs> I, you know what? That, that may be a whole new job that uh, nobody's ever thought of um, that uh, hopefully will be a job that, that has a very short shelf life. <laughs> sure. So let's talk about backups. You, you don't just need backups. You need backups and you need to test your backups. Um, you know, one of the, again, is doing research for the book. One of the, the interesting things that we found out is that a lot of times the security team, especially in large organizations, the security team has no idea what the backup strategy is because that's handled by you know operations or or IT or or another there's another group that's responsible for backups hmm. so but when a ransomware attack hits the security guys are the ones that are responsible for dealing with it so they go to the backup guys and say well okay you know do we have this backup well no we don't back up every single desktop why would we Okay. Before an attack happens, it's a really good idea for the security team to sit down with the IT team, buy some pizza and expense it so that everybody has a good time, and, and talk about what the backup strategy is. How often backups are tested? Are they tested in a real-world situation where you you know don't just test to confirm that the backup's okay, but you actually you know, try and restore from the backup? Have a good understanding of what is backed up, and then you know what what is not needed to be backed up, and also very important, know where the backups are stored. Because again, one of the things we've seen with ransomware is there are ransomware that look for network drives, and then they go off and encrypt everything on those network drives. So if your backups are stored on a SAN system that is uh, you know connected to the network. And that can be uh, encrypted from the desktop. Well, then your backup isn't very effective. So your backups do need to be restored in a way that's not easily accessible from somebody's desktop. So let's touch on the relationship between protection against ransomware and threat intelligence. There are a couple of ways that you can use threat intelligence to help um, protect you. You know, as a defender finding out what the latest indicators are. Um, and with ransomware, there's a whole lot of them. There's the file hashes. There's the, the IP addresses for the command and control host. There's the domains for the uh, uh, bad websites. There are the emails, email addresses that, that the ransomware attacks are coming from. So, so those are sort of the, the basics, right? What we consider the minimal kind of threat intelligence, right? Th those are the indicator sets that will say, okay, I need to put this in my mail protection system in order to block any email coming from these these indicators, this email address, whatever. But there's more that you can do with ransomware. You know, the, the methodologies of attack are very important, and, and a good threat intelligence provider will have that information for you. How does this particular ransomware work, and how does it work over time? So for a lot of the, the bigger ransomware families, the, the Lockies, the Cerbers, the Sporas, the world, we see pretty regular updates. They're almost like on an uh, agile cycle where every six weeks there's a new sprint and there's a new version of the, the ransomware coming out. And, and 
and they're they're using different methods of delivery and, and so on. And so understanding what the new attack methods are, that is part of threat intelligence. And that's really important because that gives you a strategic view of what you need to do to protect yourself. And, and I always encourage people, again, because we want, we want security to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. I, I encourage you to reward users. But I'm a big fan of challenge coins. And, and, and you know, and it's it just something simple like that. Somebody forwards you something that maybe have gotten through your defenses that they think looked suspicious. They, they forward it to you and you go, yeah, you know what? That's that's a really good example of a bad thing. Um, you know, have a T-shirt, have a challenge coin. Here's a $5 Starbucks gift card or even just a, hey, this is a great job. We really appreciate this work you're doing. That kind of encouragement of users gets them more involved and keeps that situational awareness going throughout the year. Our thanks to Alan Liska for joining us. You can learn more about ransomware with an upcoming webinar featuring Alan Liska and Bardia Omran from BT Global Services. Visit recordedfuture.com slash webinars for all of the details and to sign up. You can also find more intelligence analysis at recordedfuture.com slash blog. We hope you've enjoyed this show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.